everyone, and welcome to the podcast of the UN Library and Archives, Geneva. My name is Natalie Alexander, and this is The Next Page, a podcast that aims to explore and also to advance the conversation on multilateralism. For this episode, our director, Francesco Pisano, speaks with Peter Maurer, the president of the International Committee of the Red Cross, or the ICRC. You may already know about this organization, or the National Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies that are working in many nations. This conversation will take you on a deeper look into the ICRC, established more than a century ago. Peter Mara shares about its identities that have developed over time, and also gives insights into its connections with the UN, the role of young people in the organization, and also new ways of thinking and mobilizing resources to ensure work that has impact. Now, this episode's recording is over Skype as we together globally respond to the pandemic of COVID-19. And so he shares what the ICRC is doing and learning from this current situation. And as his signature in the podcast, he also shares his views on multilateralism and what this means for the ICRC in practice today. There's this plus more. We hope you enjoy this longer episode as we head into the Easter weekend. Take good care wherever you are around the world. Here we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of The Next Page, the podcast of the UN Library and Archives Geneva. Today, we're going to discuss about multilateralism in times of crisis. I'm joined over Skype, so apologies uh, for the, the background noises and echoes that you might experience. But I'm joined by Peter Maurer, who is the president of the International Committee of the Red Cross, ICRC. He's been in that position since 2012, and before of that, he covered a number of high-level positions, among which permanent representative of Switzerland to the United Nations in New York. But he will tell us a little bit more about that. And I would like, first of all, to thank you, President, for being with us over Skype, giving us your precious time uh, at this at this particular time, actually, when we were recording in the middle of the pandemic of the COVID virus emergency. And thank you so much. And before we go into the core of talking about multilateralism and, and, and crisis and the ICRC, I would like you to introduce yourself in your own words to the audience so that listeners understand better who you are and how you came to this position. Over to you, President. Well, thanks a lot. Uh, well, it's always difficult to present oneself uh, in front of an audience, but uh, as many professionals today I have, of course, also very different identities. I, uh, I have a professional identity. I have been for 25 years a diplomat for Switzerland. So this has shaped a lot of uh, important years in my life. I have been now uh, more than eight years president of the International Red Cross. Uh, I have been a historian by training and education, and I have studied history and political science, and therefore I always like uh, to deep dive into the past to understand, interpret, read present-day realities. I have a family with two daughters who are themselves now at university and, uh, and studying. I uh, I'm a family man besides being a, a professional. I'm, uh, some would say, a boring Swiss because I have grown up uh, in this country. I have traveled for Switzerland as a diplomat around the world in different places, but I have uh, not changed as adventurely or as many times as many other professionals have. And here I am discussing with you, which is a great pleasure to me. It's our pleasure, President. So let's um, get started with the ICRC, this noble ancient institution, decades of history in all over the planet. And I guess everyone can see and can relate to this international symbol of the Red Cross. Of course, everyone knows that, but I'm not sure everyone gets a chance to hear it from the president itself. So can you explain to us what it does, how it helps, and where it helps people? And maybe also if you can tell us what are the two, three big things for ICRC now. 
I think when I uh, have to explain the organization I'm presiding over, I, I always reference to the fact that the ICRC has actually three identities, not one. It is an organization which has been created as a normative organization around the first Geneva Conventions, which were negotiated amongst states in the 19th century. So it has a legal identity looking after the Geneva Convention, international humanitarian law, the law of armed conflicts, the behavior of belligerents in conflicts, the protection of civilians and the respect of basic norms and principles in this regard. This is a very strong identity and one of the original identities of the organizations. But then I have to remind all my fellow brethren humanitarians in the world who always are cautious to keep away from politics that the founding fathers of the ICRC have created an organization which was committed to neutral and impartial work, but which was eminently political, engaging with states, trying to advocate with states for having them engaged in the respect of international law. So this was an eminently political function. And when I look at the souvenirs of Solferino, the testament of Henri Dunant, as the founding father of the organization, this is basically an advocacy document, you would call it today, of the 19th, of 19th century, uh, looking at the cruelty of war and trying to preserve humanity in the midst of war. And then over time, in particular during the world wars, in particular the First World War, the ICRC has become also an operational organization delivering on the ground, delivering to people, visiting prisoners of war. This was the first big expansion of our work in the First World War, was visiting prisoners of war. It went into, with the shape of war, our operational activities have changed. The Second World War, which saw so many civilian victims, made the protection of civilians the core elements uh, of our work. And so ICRC has evolved on those three functions of its legal mandate, of its engagement with states and mandates by states and, and through its operational delivery to people suffering from war, from war and violence. And I think that's at the core of what makes ICRC's identities. It's not just a relief organization, it's a protection organization looking into changing behavior of belligerents and not just throwing money at problems and throwing aid at problems. I think its special status is given by the fact that it is a Swiss NGO. We are an association according to Swiss law, so a private Swiss entity. And at the same time, it has a mandate through the Geneva Conventions by all the signatories of the conventions, which are the most largely uh, signed international convention still today with the Children's Convention. So it has these multiple identities which shape the world. And I would maybe stop the presentation in saying it has been the first sort of at the origin of what we call the humanitarian sector today. It has also been at the origin of the creation of the movement of the Red Cross and the Red Crescent uh, over time, which today remains the largest organized social humanitarian movement with 15, 16 million volunteers organized around national societies with a lot of professionals engaging. And as you know from uh, your experience and your past, and as you know from the UN, being a trusted partner of our UN colleagues in responding to humanitarian crises in the world. And indeed, and indeed, when you were head of the, uh, the Swiss division of human security in, in the 2000s, I was working in the, in the humanitarian sector at that time. And I remember, I remember that the relationship with ICSC was always a special one special in many, many ways. It was special in the positive, but also special, I wouldn't call it in the negative, but in this way that ICRC 
ahead of uh, keeping a safe distance from from the UN. And I remember in, in several cases, for example, that the humanitarian appeal that the UN would put out and, and then ICRC had a separate appeal. But this has changed, hasn't it, President? Well, uh, it certainly has changed in many respects. I, I wouldn't say it has completely changed. We are still of the opinion that because we are governed in a different way, that we are governed by 25 independent Swiss individuals and not by 190-something states, that we have a different role and a different identity. And I think it is important to maintain those differences. But indeed, you rightly mentioned that I made a lot of effort over the last couple of years to always ask the question, is it better for people we serve that we take some distinct roads or is it better at certain moments that we cooperate? And I think with today's challenges out there, I think there is a growing recognition from many in the world that in order to deliver and to have impact, we have also to fluidly cooperate wherever we can cooperate. And I think that has been my philosophy over the last uh, eight years at the head of the ICRC. There may be good reasons sometimes to take a distinct role or to do something different from the UN, but then it has to have good reasons in terms of impact for people. On the other hand, I think we have to listen carefully to what the states who are stakeholders of the UN and stakeholders of the Geneva Conventions at the same time tell to us. And they say, yes, work together as good as you can in order to deliver to people and to use our money effectively and efficiently. And I think that's the philosophy that has inspired me. And you have seen that over the past, be it with Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, with uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres, we have always come out also together on some of the pressing issues which we were appealing to states together. We are fluidly working on the ground with the operational agencies of the UN in particular, of course, with HCR, with UNICEF, with World Food Programme, with a lot of others, and we have excellent cooperations with OCHA as the humanitarian coordinator. So we are not separate because we like to be separate, but, but, but we are sometimes distinct because we think it makes sense to be distinct. And it, and it does make sense also in, in some leadership theory, for example, this is called selective change, the capacity to adjust to the situation as it changes. And this is characteristic that usually you find in, in young and agile organizations. And, and, and congratulations to ICRC, who is a over 100 years old uh, organization, to be able to be that agile in that complex world that is humanitarian protection and, and uh, upholding the conventions. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, if you want, about the, the, the value of the conventions today. But before we go there, I was interested in the youth factor. It's, uh, I have uh, at least four personal friends who are around 30, some of them not even 30, and they now working, they're now working for, for, for your organization. They're spread across the, the globe in places that are not very comfortable. And I was very much stricken with the sense of commitment and the desire to work with you. And so I, I thought, I'm going to ask the president, what makes ICRC so attractive to young people and how you as a president look at youth as a factor for your organization? Well, look, I think the mandate and mission of the organization are truly inspiring and are probably inspiring for the youth. It hasn't been always the same, but I, I would say that the millennial generation today is a generation looking for sense in life, to contribute to society. It's not the youth which takes distance from society. And I think we have priv been privileged in that sense that we have seen 
a resurging interest into this deep and profound humane mission that the organization is rep representing. You said yourself in your introduction, it was interesting when you said everybody knows this symbol of the Red Cross. And indeed, I'm sometimes surprised that while people may not know the detail of what we are exactly doing, but it seems that the Red Cross and Red Crescent has managed over time to create today, you would say, the brand of values associated with the work we are doing, which are inspiring and sense-giving to the young generation. And I, I think one of the testimony of it is when I look at our recruitment figures, it is interesting to see that for instance, for something like three, four hundred open posts a year at the ICRC for basically mobile staff moving from one conflict to another, we have between 16 and 20,000 applications. So there is a youth out there which seems to be inspired by solidarity, by the principles of humanity. And I think that's uh, uh, really comforting and reconforting also in the state of youth today. I don't want to be uncritical either. Sometimes when I come to some places in the world, I'm concerned that the Red Cross in certain communities may also be three elderly men and women and the bank account. And this is also a reality. But... I think the last Red Cross and Red Crescent Conference last December here in Geneva was a big moment also to recognize that youth is coming to the leadership of national societies and the next generation coming in is carrying the, the, idea, the idea forward and I think that's a powerful message. Now, when you talk about these societies, are you talking about the societies that relate directly to the committee or are you talking about the societies that are part of the federation? Yeah, it's, it's both. I mean, we recruit a lot of people at ICRC in countries in which we operate. And of course, recruitment sometimes reflect also the societies. When I look at national societies, yes, national societies in some industrialized countries have maybe because of the, of the state taking over social functions, so much in Europe, in other places of the world, have sometimes lost a little bit of their connection and impact to the next generation. And I think what is great to see and has been interesting to see, for instance, with the migration crisis in 2015, with Corona now, is how this energizes national societies to listen carefully again to what is happening in their social fabrics and which uh, energizes youth to come forward and in solidarity with those who need it. I would like to, to take this opportunity that you're here with us to, to ask your opinion about the evolution of humanitarian practice and policy since the Geneva Convention on today. Your organization was there long before what is today known as the you know, humanitarian complex of, situ of organizations uh, coordinated by, by the UN, but also by the European Commission as an office for the coordination, etc. But you were there before. These organizations were born in the 90s, not that long ago. So what is in your, from your sort of privileged uh, observation deck, you see behind you over 100 years of this action, and you see in, in recent de decades, uh, these sort of narrowing of what we call the humanitarian space. So what is that you see? Why it has become so difficult to protect humanitarian workers, humanitarian space, those who go out there at the, at the peril of their own lives to protect others? Well, I think it has to do with the difficulties, very frankly, the international system and the United Nations have had in bringing sustainable peace solutions to contexts. And I think the opposite image of the continuing wars and protracted 
conflicts that we have seen unfold is that uh, the humanitarian space has increasingly been politicized and has become an object of political controversy. I still remember when I started as a deputy permanent observer at the the then observer mission in New York in 1996, one of the first debates with a humanitarian content the Security Council held was a debate on mine action. And this was one of the first issues which came to the Security Council. Since then, we have seen not only the thematic agenda of the Security Council considerably increasing, and there is positive value in these issues being discussed in the Security Council, but it is also a concern that all the issues which before have been basically areas of professional work of humanitarians have become issues of controversy between powers and the inability to find political solution has then swapped back into the humanitarian space. So politicization is an important one. I would then mention two other trends. One is more positive and one is more concerning. On the positive side, I think over the decades, we have seen a lot of professionalism coming to the humanitarian sector. If I compare the ICRC in the 1950s and 60s, and it was a small group of people basically trying to improvise in in difficult emergency situations. Today, the whole humanitarian sector has been heavily professionalized, and I think for the good of people and impact on people, we, we know much better how to use money, what to do. We have standard operation procedures, we have principles, we have guidelines, we have processes, and this is all positive. On the negative side, I think over the last decades, we have also seen a bureaucratization of humanitarianism. And this is something which I feel strongly in an organization which understands itself as a frontline organization where the ingenuity and talent of the person at the frontline to bring belligerents together, to negotiate trustful relationships, to negotiate the respect of the principles is as important as bureaucratic frameworks. And today, I think there is a real danger that the talent and art of frontline humanitarian work, including frontline diplomacy, frontline negotiation, improvisation for delivery in the most difficult circumstances is replaced by bureaucratic frameworks, reporting, statistics, log frames, which takes away some of the inspirational aspect of what humanitarianism has to be. And I think today, one of the important challenges is really finding the right balance between being accountable and respectful for donors and what they need in terms of accountability. And on the other hand, creating and recreating a space in which uh, the person is at the center, the victim is at the center, but also the humanitarian is at the center, trying to build and to bring back the tissue of society, which has been heavily harmed by conflict. So I think when I look at the trends, politicization, bureaucratization, and then the sort of maintaining the spirit of humanitarianism and bring bringing these issues into balance is something which is a big preoccupation today. At least it's a a big preoccupation for me each and every day to find the right balance in it. Well, I guess, President Maurer, that those colleagues of yours around the world that are listening to us, to this episode, should be encouraged by a president (coughs) of the organization being able to, to, to recognize the, uh, the problem of bureaucratization, the problem of having too many detailed processes and less frontline, I think it's encouraging because in many organizations, actually, those are 
top-down rules that are being put to executives that work in, in operations. And actually here we have uh, the top of the organization recognizing that we have to find a balance between processes and frontline action. Well, I'm, uh, I'm certainly uh, always rebellious when I do recognize that, again, that donors want to have accountability structures and processes in place. And, and I recognize that to a certain extent this is important, but I also challenge our donors always and I ask them, do you want us to use resources for reports that nobody reads? Or do you want resources to be used to help to people who suffer? And I think it is important to always ask these questions. You can then find a balanced response to it. I think we have to be reasonable. The humanitarian sector manages so many billions today that we can't expect just to have some improvising delegates at front lines to spend this money. That's, we, we can't go back to the sort of age which has never existed of not, no accountability. But, but I think it is important that we, we challenge these tendencies and we try to figure out what is really important to measure, what is really important to know, and what are feasible accountability structure, which again create a space also for those who are at the front line to find practical solutions for people. So when we talk about this balance between processes, writing reports, studying the statistics, um, accumulating data for monitoring evaluation, all these things that we know, of course, in the UN, a lot, perhaps even a lot more than, than in your organization. But when we talk about this and the balance between the capacity to be reactive and responsive in the front line where it's needed, et cetera, there is one, one thing that always surprised me in my work as a humanitarian in the past is that a crisis is always an emergency. And an emergency is always this much further ahead of whatever system you may put in place. Otherwise, it's not an emergency. That's the big problem. So, for example, today in the world, you have all these many operations going, and so do other organizations, of course, and we are in the middle of the surge of this pandemic due to this uh, corona, new coronavirus, the COVID-19. So I'd like to ask, are you really learning from this new emergency? What is that this is teaching you as an organization? Well, I definitely believe that what we are experiencing at the present moment is not completely unexpected. Many scientists, many health specialists, many humanitarians have warned for quite some time that pandemics may be a feature that will structure the work that we are doing as much as violence, national disaster and climate change have structured many of the crises and emergencies that we have been un seen unfolding in the past. So I think today's COVID-19 corona crisis is a reminder of the powerful agenda that pandemics will bring to the humanitarian sector and to the health sector in the future. Of course, we have seen SARS, we have seen Ebola, but when I compare what is so different is the dimension of it. This is a crisis which touches now 194 countries which have cases of COVID-19. And so it's really a global pandemic in proportions that we haven't seen beforehand. And I'm sure that it happening at the present moment will shape the agendas, uh, the agendas for the future and for, for quite some time. What is, of course, uh, one of the big concerns to all of us today is that whenever some of these new trends and new problems emerge so powerfully on the international agenda, none of the problems from the past has been resolved. Climate change is still a powerful reality. Violence and conflict is still a reality. I reminded many of my 
colleagues and in, I said in interviews in the last couple of days, just because there is corona, it doesn't mean that the Syrian, the Yemeni, the Sahelian, the Lake Chad conflicts, the Afghanistan conflicts, the Ukrainian and Venezuelan situation have changed. They continue and they are even more complex as we are continuing under situation of pandemics. And I think this is something which will certainly force us to, to work differently, to learn also differently. We have to find protocol and procedures to, again, balance the restrictive measures which are necessary to combat the pandemic compared with the humanitarian space which is so necessary to deliver. What happens in hospitals today in our industrialized, developed countries is probably what will happen as a dilemma tomorrow in humanitarian contexts. How do you ensure delivery of services to people without being yourself an agent of propagating and expanding the virus? So some of these challenges are, of course, of critical importance and uh, we don't have yet all the responses and we will have to find them as we move forward and as we try to find the solutions and responses to some of these challenges that the pandemic gives to us today. One of my favorite quotes in the universe is Churchill's sentence, never let a good crisis go to waste. And I see that this is the case for ICRC. I see that all your learning antennas are deployed and you are paying attention to what's happening and learning from this uh, crisis in the crisis. And thank you for underlying that there are huge worldwide crises or global problems like climate change and others and conflict, lack of peace that continue and will continue even after this uh, virus-based pandemic. We talked about the, the youth factor before. Another factor that I love to talk about is the human factor. And actually, with you, it's perfect because for two reasons. First of all, because humanitarian work protection works means basically putting people at the center of what, uh, of what you do, center, left and right, everywhere. And the second factor is that you come across as a human. And when uh, one follows you on Twitter, for example, or your press conferences that you rarely give, uh, we see you in the field, we see you interacting with your beneficiaries, but also with staff worldwide. You travel like crazy, maybe not right now, and you meet all these people and you truly seem to meet them uh, on a human basis. So is it because it's you or is it because the ICRC or both of them? Tell us a little bit about the human factor in what you do. Well, I think it is essential that as a president of an institution, you also uh, try to represent, incorporate what the institution means to people. And uh, I think our staff, our resources, our beneficiaries, uh, those uh, who suffer are all in the field. And that's the reason why it is important that in order to do my job as a chief diplomat of the organization, I feel that I need to understand not only on an abstract and intellectual level, but on the level of stories told to me and the level of experience that I have been able to have with concrete conflict contexts, I think for me it is of critical importance to be a credible diplomat by being close to people, close to delivery, close to the staff. And that's the reason why I try to be so often in contexts and also to alternate my presence and to understand my role as being the voice of those who suffer and in order to be the voice you have to understand what their plight is and you have to be close to them and to have been and seen and heard and smelt and felt what is happening and then at the same time yes as a president of the institution it gives you access to the leaders of the world but i think i can only have and be a credible voice 
if those leaders feel that I'm talking about something which is real and which is a lived experience. So I think it's the essence of being the president of ICRC that you are able to work on these both levels and that you are able to navigate from the human experience to the diplomatic influencing and vice versa. It's also important to communicate and to tell people what the realities of the discussions and the political discussions and what the realities of the international system is, because very often people in the field and people experiencing war and violence have still illusions also on what and how fast the international community can help. And so I see myself a little bit as a translator between those different worlds, which sometimes are pretty disconnected. And let's talk now about this topic that we talk every time on our episodes and the postcards is, is multilateralism. And there is certainly a nexus, and you mentioned several times already in this, in this episode, the nexus between multilateralism and, and the work you do as ICRC. But I would like to, to go a little bit deeper on that and ask you what is really that multilateralism does to your work? Is it a precondition? Is it a surrounding environment? There is, in the eyes of some observers, there is a deterioration of the spirit of multilateralism in the, in the relationship among nations. Is that a problem for the work you try to do? One of the things that, that impressed me in your, in your career President Maurer, is that uh, you were appointed ambassador to the UN almost immediately after that Switzerland went from observer to, to being a member. And so, in a way, you were right there at the front line, building the, the sort of multilateral <coughs> network of Switzerland. Not that Switzerland didn't have any before, but let's say multilateral, the blue multilateral network being a, a full member. And today, you lead ICRC. And so you must have this diplomat feeling for multilateralism. And now as a leader of ICRC, how do you see the two? Do you see them as a precondition, as, a, as an empowerment factor, or they can live separate lives? I do believe that there is, at the basis, I think we have to recognize today, I mentioned it a little bit earlier, that the challenges which we are encountering either as humanitarians, as development workers, as, as uh, other people, whether as representatives of states or representatives of civil societies, all the challenges that we are encountering are badly catered for if you try to solve them on your own. And I think my understanding of multilateralism is of a broad multilateralism. It starts with the recognition that you can't do it alone. You need partners to have good work done. You need partners when you are a state. You need partners when you are a humanitarian. You need states as a partner when you are a humanitarian. You need business academia as partners. And I have always had a broad understanding of what multilateral frameworks are. I think I would not be over-enthusiastic today to just reduce with all the appreciation I have for the UN and the UN system, but I would not reduce multilateralism to the UN system. I think I have learned through my experience and to diplomacy for a state and for today, the ICRC, that we have to shape these systems which are multipolar, which are multiplied, which have different relationships. There is multilateralism, there is minilateralism. Countries are meeting in different configuration. Organizations are meeting in different configuration. I think in today's world, we have to build alliances of people willing to act together and to move forward together. 
That's, in my understanding, a modern understanding of multilateralism. Multilateralism for me today has to be multi-stakeholder multilateralism. It has not to be the states here, the civil society there, the business there, and the academia there. It has to bring those components together. And if we have this broad understanding of multilateralism, we, we may also see disappear some of the artificial controversy on multilateralism. I think many countries know that they have to work through and with the UN, but also through and with other states and other organizations. Decisions within a UN framework are hardly effective if they are not accompanied by intensive intergovernmental work at the site and at the margin and outside of the UN, I think we experience very similar, well, very similar things on, on where we are. And I think with this broad understanding, I'm deeply convinced that the future will be multilateral, but not in a restrictive sense, but in a very large sense uh, of uh, the understanding of the word. I definitely do agree with you. The multilateralism of the future is much more inclusive, participatory, globalized, decentralized than the one we have been operating with and within until now. And I think that that transition is felt by many leaders like you, and it is guessed by many also national leaders inside, inside countries, whether or not they're members of the United Nations or part of boards of international organization and other type of organizations. Now, nevertheless, the multilateral system as we are living, that we're living in now, is less generous, is less people-centered. It's more biased and politicized. You mentioned that yourself before uh, with regard to the evolution of humanitarian uh, work over the years. Nevertheless, in this sort of not completely friendly and supporting environment, you managed to increase the budget of ICRC in a way that the press has called historic. And, and that means that they've got the right leader in you, but that means also that ICRC is perhaps enjoying a, a higher credibility than other large institutions who have not managed that trick. Quite to the contrary, they've seen the budgets uh, shrink quite dramatically. So what, what is our work there, President? Well, I'm as much as I appreciate your kind words, I'm not 100% sure whether it is so extraordinary. I think in the humanitarian se- the humanitarian sector has grown overproportionally and many other humanitarian organizations have also been growing over the last couple of years. Other institutions have maybe not and there I would again agree with you. I think uh, at the end of the day, we need to be able to demonstrate the value that we are bringing to the membership in the case of the UN, to stakeholders in the case of ICRC. I think it is of critical importance that we establish those trustful relationships. And I do understand that not every organization has the same good cards to display. I think there are objectively situations, contexts, which are more complicated because you are more in the crossfire of big power or also small power interest on certain issues than on others. So I would actually consider it normal that humanitarianism is probably the bottom line of consensus that we have to expect from the international community to source and resource. And I do recognize that when you go into more complex issues beyond humanitarianism, bringing political divisions and divergences, it is maybe more difficult to establish that kind of relationship. Having said that, I think 
this is not a time for doomsday. I do not experience and I don't share also the sort of depressive rhetorics on the multilateralism is going down the drain. I think multilateral institutions still have a lot of support and there is a lot of goodwill towards the UN, the UN system, many other uh, multilateral systems. And I think it is just, we have to recognize that in a time of accountability, we have to redouble our efforts to deserve also and to mobilize and to energize that goodwill which is, which is there. And I think it is important that we start not to doubt ourselves about the importance of the mission that we are engaged in, be it on the UN side or on the Red Cross side. I think we need to believe ourselves in the mission and then we probably will be able to convince others to believe in that mission as well. That's a powerful message there. One of the things that, before we wrap up, one of the things that I always wanted to have the opportunity to ask you, and now here we are, face-to-face through, through the Skype video, is what is the humanitarian impact bond? How and who, I don't know if it was you personally, but how did this come to mind? Please explain to our audience this, I think, genius idea of mixing humanitarian action and actually a bond scheme. Tell us about it. Well, look, it's a very simple idea, which actually I can go back to the previous discussion on multilateralism. I, I strongly believe that when I look at the needs landscape today, that we most objectively and realistically will not manage to just fundraise taxpayers' money to deliver for all the goods we should be able to deliver even in the humanitarian space. So the traditional model of financing humanitarian action, fundraising in order to spend on emergencies is still an important model for emergencies, but it is and cannot be the only financial model in which we think. When we look at today's crisis is more long-term, more impactful, more systemic, then we need to find other financial vehicles to be able to finance what we are doing. And that's where the bond idea originated. Instead of fundraising for spending, we said we need to make capital available to deliver impact and we have to build that into an economic model of return on investment. If you are in a capital model, then you have to return on your investment. And return on investment in the humanitarian space is only possible if you can measure and return impact to the investors. Instead of in bringing him market-driven profits back, you give him the capital back if you have achieved a certain amount of results and impact on the ground. And this should energize the investor then to reinvest this capital. So it's it's just a very simple logic to recognize that when we are in long-term needs, systemic needs, measurable needs, where impact can be delivered, then we can energize different kinds of finances and we can see whether we find private investors to deliver to humanitarian organizations so that they can look for impact and returns. And this is what we tried to do in an area where ICRC felt most comfortable the creation of physical rehabilitation centers. We have created physical rehabilitation centers for decades. We know how much we need to invest at the origin. We know how long it lasts to construct them. We know how long it takes to bring patients and staff to skill. We know how many people we can bring after a certain time back into profitable labor markets in order to give them incomes in order to bring them out of dependency. And so 
when we have all these issues, then we can make a value proposition to private investors to tell within five years, we will create this amount of centers against this amount of indicators. And then we can also find outcome funders who are ready to pay the investors back. And that's where the idea of the humanitarian impact bond has arisen. And two of the three physical rehabilitation centers are operational today. They have been constructed. They are operational. They are on good course. The third one will, be, will soon be. And so it's a success story, not because it changes fundamentally the ball game because of the numbers are still small, but because of the proof of concept that we should in the future not only think about fundraising to spend, but also making capital available to transform and to have impact. And I think that's a model which we are trying to spread. We are working on a second impact bond for the rehabilitation of water distribution systems in, the, in Eastern Congo. We are thinking about third impact bonds. And I hope that this is a model which over time can generate much more capital for impact. Well, and I wish you that there are investors out there listening to this now and they will give you a call and see what's in there for them for, for these bonds. This is a wonderful story. Thank you, President, for sharing with us and with our audience. I would like to, as we wrap up this episode, I would like to say thank you for all your time. And I would like to ask you if you have any final thoughts, if you have a message that you want our listeners to, to remember coming from the president of the ICRC. Well, because I'm talking to UN podcast, I have to confess that one of the key words of the Geneva Conventions is each and every day in front of my mind and inspires me each and every day. And it is this concept that in situations of crisis, the high contracting parties of the Geneva Convention should work in cooperation with the United Nations to address the problem. And this is what inspires me each and every day and which probably frames in the best way where I'm coming from. I think we should closely work together whenever there is a situation where we need to work together and we have each of us our own lives as well and our own identities. But I wanted to thank all the UN colleagues for the great cooperation we have throughout the years in so many places of the world and to ensure that uh, the ICRC will try to be in the future as we have been in the past a trusted partner of all our UN friends. Peter Maurer, President of the International Committee of the Red Cross, thank you very much for being with us on the next page today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I appreciate the opportunity to talking to you.